0: Welcome back to Talking Tudors, episode 127. I'm your host, Natalie Gruniger, and I'm so glad that you could join me. As always, I'd like to begin by acknowledging and thanking the wonderful listeners who continue to support this podcast via Podbean Patreon and extend a heartfelt thank you to everyone who's taken the time to rate and review the show. This really does help other people find us. If you love the podcast and tune into every episode, perhaps you'd consider becoming a Talking Tudors Patron. Just click on the Be My Patron on Podbean badge on the homepage of my website, www.onthetudortrail.com, or click on the Be A Patron button on the Podbean app. Join the Talking Tudors Patron family, and in addition to receiving lots of Tudor-themed goodies, you'll be automatically entered into our patron-only monthly giveaways. September's prize is an Elizabeth I acrylic block the perfect addition to any bookshelf, desk, or study. A huge thank you to Philippa from British History Travels for sponsoring this wonderful prize. All patrons are also eligible to attend monthly Talking Tudors live talks, which take place on Zoom. These events are exclusive to patrons. At the end of the month, I'll be chatting to Dr. Owen Emerson and Claire Ridgway about their new book, The Berlins of Hever Castle. Please get in touch with me if you'd like to register for this event. Now, on to today's episode. I'm thrilled that joining me on the show to talk about the Seamalls and Wolf Hall is Graham Bathe. Graham has conducted an intensive 20-year study of the Royal Hunting Forest of Savanac, based on original handwritten documentation dating from the 1100s onwards. This provides the context for historical research into Wolf Hall and the Seymours. He's participated in archaeological investigations at Wolf Hall and on the Duke of Somerset's massive replacement mansion being built nearby at the same time as Somerset House and Scion House in London. In particular, he's keen to reconcile archaeological and documentary sources to reveal the true Tudor landscape of the Seymours. He has published over a dozen papers, book chapters and articles Our conversation's coming straight up after this short musical break, courtesy of guitarist John Sayles. Welcome to Talking Tutors, Graham. How are you?
1: I'm very well, thanks.
0: It's wonderful to have you on the show. Now, I suppose a, a really good place to start would be you just introducing yourself to our listeners and just telling us a little bit about your background.
1: Yes, well, my name is Graham Bathe, and I suppose I'm a hybrid, really, because uh, my professional career was in countryside management, wildlife conservation, and Anybody who's visited Britain will know you can't really study the natural history here unless you know something about the cultural history because most of our natural history is based on on human management and intervention through the uh, centuries or millennia. And it was from that that I became very interested in, in common land, that is the rights of people to graze land or exploit land in particular ways, and then in turn, I became extremely interested in royal hunting forests, and one in particular, which is Savanac in Wiltshire, which I know well and visit very frequently, and that was um, home to the Seymours. So it, it sort of has evolved through the years, and now I'm retired. I spend virtually all of my time researching matters relating to the Seymours and to royal hunting forests.
0: Yes, and I can see that you have a wonderful study, absolutely jam-packed with books, which is amazing, I I imagine helpful for your research.
1: I cannot resist them, I'm afraid. if, If something new comes out, it doesn't matter whether it's online, I have to have it, I have to have it in my hand.
0: I'm exactly the same. So that makes two of us. So you mentioned the Savanac Forest and you mentioned the Seymour's. So we're going to talk a little bit more about the Seymour family. Would you mind telling us a little bit about the manor of Wolf Hall?
1: Yes, Wolf Hall, I suppose, exists under three guises. Yes, it was a manor that is a an area of land that was managed under a lord of the manor. It was also a, a village or hamlet in its own right although we don't hear about it after about the late 1300s so we're not terribly sure what happened to it whether it succumbed in the um, in the black death or whether it, uh, people were removed from it uh, and it's also the name given to a to a house and of course the name warfall it can be spelt in a huge variety of ways most of the time through history it's been a single word uh, and in doomsday indeed it's Ulfella. Uh, which is probably, um, it means Ulf, that's somebody's name, it's a Saxon name, uh, and it means their hollow or their nook. Uh, The name Wolf Hall almost certainly has nothing to do with wolves and nothing to do with halls. So I don't mind how people spell it, provided they don't try and correct me, and I normally spell it W-O-L-F-H-A-L-L as a single word. Now, Wolf Hall was there in in the Norman times. We hear it in the Doomsday Book. And it was a household then, uh, well, sorry, it was a a hamlet then of eight households, fairly small. And probably then it it had a significant manor house. But again, you know, fairly small by modern standards, probably was built of stone. And then it became uh, a home to what was called, what were called the, the Estermy family, the Stermy or Estermy family. We hear about them in uh, the Doomsday book and the Estermy family spawned the Seymours and the Seymours spawned the, um, um, the Earls of Aylesbury. And one of the really bizarre, but I think just so interesting, so unbelievable features about Wolf Hall is that there is a, a, a lovely family who live there now And almost certainly, almost certainly, they are direct descendants of Richard Sturney, who held the village in uh, 1086. So you've got that incredible line of continuity in that area going on for over 900 years. You've got a strand of DNA over 900 years old, which links Doomsday with the current occupants.
0: That is quite extraordinary, isn't it? I, I didn't realise that they um that it went back so far. That's incredible. So let's talk a little bit about the 16th century house. So the Wolf Hall of Tudor times, I suppose. What do we know of the appearance of the house at that point?
1: Well, I suppose uh, as with a lot of these things, Natalie, uh, we have to we have to guess. We have little pointers, and the rest is. Guesswork. We know that people at the time described it as just a wooden thing, but for all that it was huge and it was sometimes also called a palace and was indeed a palace capable of uh, entertaining up to 1,600 people for dinner. So um, even though a lot of those might be in tents and and might be in the surrounding grounds, just the logistics of that is absolutely enormous. And getting it right, and given the fact that the king is there, and the king visited many, many times, so it's it's going to be a prestigious place. One of the things that has survived from that time is, is underground. It is underlain by an incredible network of tunnels, which were almost certainly sewers and drains, for the place. These are are large enough. I'm I'm six foot and they're large enough for me to stand up in. I've got to crouch a little bit, but it's it's fairly comfortable. And there is over 100 metres of this network of tunnels, which was draining a much, much larger house than is there now, and and when we think of Walfall, we've got to think of it as sort of ebbing and flowing. It's had its um, highlights, and the house now is, although it's large, is very modest compared to what there was there in in Tudor times. Now, we know that um, in 1531, scaffolding was put up there. One of the things... One of the ways in which we know about Warfall is from the accounts, because nobody made a, a painting at the time, or if they did, it hasn't survived, and uh, nobody really made any significant description. But when anything was, um, had to be done there, uh, and it cost money, it went into the accounts, and the accounts have survived. They've, they've survived uh, in extreme detail from a couple of years. And so, um, for example, in 1537, we hear that a sum of money, about £1.10, was paid to the glazier of Hungerford, that's a local village, uh, the glazier of Hungerford, who had to come along and replace 120 windows, which had blown out in the great wind of April 1537 in the turret. Now, if it hadn't have been for that cost, we wouldn't have known that Wolf Hall had a tower or turret, we wouldn't have known that there was a great wind of 1537 and it blew out 120 panes. Now, doubtless these panes are quite small, you know, it's leaded lights, but for all that, that is a a substantial feature. So when you put all the bits together, for example, they, they had to retile the king's chamber. Now again, if it wasn't for that one record, we wouldn't know that the king had his own chamber there, just reserved for royal visits. And when you had a king's chamber, you generally also had a queen's chamber. And then we hear also in the accounts of... Oh, sorry, I've got to look at my crib notes here. But we hear about a great hall, two galleries. There was a long gallery where people could process along and look at, the, look at the landscape through a series of windows. A great chamber, broad chamber, lots of family rooms and nurseries. We know that when the family went to London, to Somerset House as it became in London, uh, they took with them 30 beds from Wharf Hall, so that, that gives us another clue. We know there was a chapel because work was needed to be done on that. There was a treasury, an armory, something called an evidence room, the tower, as I mentioned, plus all the servants' quarters and the um, garderobes. So it, had, it wouldn't have had flushing toilets, but um, it would have had toilets that effectively drained down below and then it could be sluiced through. Uh, And that would have been a very, very prestigious thing uh, in those days. And in 1531, scaffolding was put up on the former Wolf Hall and it was being revamped and almost certainly it was being upgraded substantially in advance of uh, the king's visits.
0: It does sound like a substantial house, doesn't it? Do we know, did the sewers give any clue as to whether it was a courtyard house, a double courtyard house or anything along those lines?
1: We do, we do. It it was um, a double courtyard house, or at least it had at least two courts and it had a a series of gardens as well it had a box garden a primrose garden um, something called the great paled garden which probably was a kitchen garden that was an acre in itself an area called my young lady's garden my old lady's garden an arbor it also had eight orchards so it was a very very significant um, structure it would have made a, a, a massive statement on the landscape
0: Fantastic, and if if any of our listeners Google the house today, we a, a lovely range does come up. We see photos of a of a range that's standing there today. Is that part of the 16th century house? Oh, sorry, was that part of the 16th century house? I should say.
1: Well, as as I, as I mentioned earlier, the the fortunes of Warfall Hall have sort of ebbed and flowed, and at various times it became huge, and then for um, a variety of reasons, which perhaps we'll go on to it, it fell into decay. And the jury is really out, I think, on whether there is anything surviving from that time. We've had a a significant survey by one architectural historian who is who is saying yes, part of the, part of the a small part of that range would have been present in Tudor times. Uh, Certainly, the sewers were present in in Tudor times, but in some ways it doesn't matter. Uh, I think. I've agonized about this a lot, but in some ways it doesn't matter because um, it's one of these places where the history is just so much more interesting than uh, the the bits that survive today. So my guess is, yes, a little bit has survived, but it was substantially uh, redeveloped on on a much more modest scale, and as a farmhouse as opposed to a palace in the late 1500s, okay. early 1600s.
0: All right, and tell us about the the 20-month, I believe it was 20-month excavation that took place on the site of the, the Tudor house, the Seymour house. What did you and your team uncover there?
1: Yeah, so uh, I, I suppose there were many surprises. Um, some of them, it just shows how it's been revamped vastly upgraded and then that's been torn down another structure's been put put up that's been torn down so unravelling all this and unravelling the dates for all this is really quite tricky it's clear that there was a substantial stone structure there in medieval times, we unearthed the base of a tower. And if you if you think of, say, Hampton Court, you see these massive octagonal towers um, standing like as gatehouses, and and they may stand to two or three stories. Well, we found a, a massive octagonal tower we thought there would be another one a little bit further along and that would make a gatehouse but we couldn't find another one so we're not sure about that and of course it could be the turret as mentioned in the 1537 documents so there was a stone building then um, in medieval times and probably in Tudor times that was when brick was being introduced. And Brick, although we think of Brick now as being sort of fairly humdrum and familiar, uh, Brick was the building stone of choice. of It was really fashionable in the um, in the early 1500s, because you could build at breakneck speed with it. You can build sort of contorted Tudor chimneys. You could build these great gatehouses. It was an extremely flexible thing. And they had to import people from from London because nobody knew locally how to make how to make bricks. But the uh, the clay is there. And so it would have looked like a, a massive brick and wooden structure and we found sort of relics of all these as we've been going along. Alongside that perhaps the commonest thing that we find, the commonest single thing that we find are oyster shells and thousands of bones. I can't remember how many oyster shells. Somebody did start counting them. I think there were tens of thousands but he he probably got quite bored and a a lot of bones as well and and what is quite interesting is that these, uh, what we're finding there, it does tie in very well with the written records and we do have records of the of the menus that they had there.
0: Yes I'd love to hear a little bit more about that so can you tell us a little bit about the Tudor feasting habits?
1: Well certainly when um, Henry VIII visited that that was just carnage in terms of the number of animals that were were slaughtered. And I've got, I've just got in front of me a, a menu from, um, this is from 1539, when the king visited, and it's for two days. And, and on the first day, it was a it was a fish menu, and they had um, a sturgeon, salmon, trout, pike, tench, bream, carp, uh, lobsters, uh, place, congas, other eels. They also ate 200 eggs, 240 loaves, uh, and that was just for the family, for uh, for seventy people, and um, and the and the household. So everybody would have would have eaten together. And although we perhaps think, well, it's it's very difficult to keep fish fresh in in those days, people would have to fast at least once per week, maybe twice per week, or or would have to refrain from eating meat. And the rationale for for of the church. From refraining from eating meat, is so that you can sort of contemplate, and you may contemplate Jesus um, fasting in the desert or something like that. But it really just became an excuse to to feast on fish instead of meat. And they would send a, a carter from Wharf Hall up to London, and you would think, well, what state is it going to be like? But each week he would be he would be purchasing barrels and barrels of oysters. It, it was a, a completely normal food during so-called fasting days and masses of fish you know barrels of herring as I say on occasion barrels of sturgeon depending on who was coming now that was on that was on fish days and and Saturday the 9th of August in 1539 was a uh, was a fish day the following day we think probably about 1,500 or so people attended, and it required the slaughter of six oxen, 12 calves, 24 sheep, and 428 birds. Uh, and those birds included swans, egrets, storks, cranes, peacocks. Peacocks, of course, could be um, they would be skinned and then the bird roasted and then put back in its skin as a table decoration. And gulls, pheasants, partridges, chickens, and they were also entertained by the king's sackbutts. He, he brought his own his own musicians with him: um, sackbutts and and trumpets and uh, taberay tambourine—and violins. So it was it was a scene of incredible entertainment, accommodation, and and feasting. Even if you're a rich person, and your daughter is marrying today, to entertain. 1500 1600 people is enormous you know it's an enormous undertaking and to get it right and to get cream you know often they're barrels of cream and you wouldn't want that to go off especially if the if the king is attending
0: it's extraordinary I, I just can't even imagine the size of their kitchens to be able to to put out something like that that's incredible so I wanted to talk to you a little bit about Sir John Seymour and some people that are listening have probably heard that his death is usually said to have taken place after Jane has become queen. So in December 1536. However, in an article that you actually co-authored with Ian Purvis, you proposed an earlier date. So around December 1535, what led you to question the traditional date and what evidence is there to support the the circa 1535 date?
1: yeah uh, well Sir John's tomb is now in Great Bedouin Church, It's a, it's a fine chest tomb and there is a, an effigy of Sir John lying on it. He's dressed in armor uh, and fine regalia. And the there is a plaque on the wall that said uh, here here lies entombed the worthy Sir John, who died in de- December the 21st. 1536, aged 60, and nobody's questioned that, and nobody really has had cause to question it, because when somebody dies, you know when they die, you might not know when they were born, so you can sort of understand that there could be errors on a tomb concerning when they're born, but not when they when they die. Now, the, the death of Sir John, to some extent, has generated difficulties, which some authors have exploited, because there, there are a couple of things which are quite peculiar about Sir John. One is that when his daughter married, Henry VIII didn't give anything to Sir John. He didn't give Sir John a title, which would have been normal. He didn't give him any land. He didn't give anything, absolutely zero, and that in itself is very unusual and some authors have said ah oh, it's because they hated each other because you know sir john didn't want his daughter to marry to marry the king the other thing is that when he died reputedly in 1536 in december 1536 jane didn't go to the funeral there's no record jane jane was living in london then and um, we would know there were so many meticulous royal records we would know if she left london to attend a funeral or even to comfort her mother but she didn't and people again have have exploited this in in novels Alison Weir has exploited it in in her novel about Jane Seymour that Jane hated her father now be that as it may we uh, my my friend Ian and I we we stumbled across a record Uh, It seems that Sir John died intestate. He didn't have a will. So you needed church consent from the, in this case, the Archbishop of of Canterbury, uh, Cranmer. You needed consent to administer his affairs as if he had a will, as, as the heir. So Edward Seymour, that's Jane's brother and the elder son of Sir John, got the consent of the Archbishop of Canterbury to administer Sir John's affairs. But the that letter of, of administration is dated January, 5th of January, 1536. And that sort of raised doubts in our minds, you know, have they made an error? Is, is there something going on there? And some of the dates that you get are, are really very complicated because of course people record Dates according to the regnal years, according to the how many years the king has been on the throne. And often these things are compiled in archives and and from a whole set of loose papers in archives. Some archivist in the past very kindly has has sort of worked out where that one comes after that one, that one and pulled them together in a volume. And then you think, well, I wonder if I wonder if he's got it right. You know, perhaps perhaps page two shouldn't be there. Perhaps it should be page 24 or something like that. Anyway, we then found a number of other records, and there is no question they they were selling off his affairs, uh, his his um, his goods, his stock in the summer of 1530 You know, his horse and various things that weren't required anymore. And there are several references to the late Sir John or my late master. So there is no doubt that the evidence all shows that he died before the 5th of January 1536. We know he was alive in November 1535, so the chances are that he died exactly one year earlier. So how did this error arise? Well, two two things. Sir John was not buried in Great Bedouin to start with. He was buried at Eastern Priory, which had been the sort of mausoleum of the Seymour family, but the, the tomb fell into decay. So many, many decades later, um, his his body was brought from Easton to Bedwin and a new tomb erected there, and this new plaque put up on the wall. And it's also quite likely, the other thing is, it's quite likely that a, a monumental mason read a six as a five, or the other way round, sorry, the other way round, and and just carved it wrong. It's really really very, very likely, and it has always been accepted, you know, I'm sure just about every book you go to will have this tomb as the original source Mm. of the date of his death. All the genealogies—they all do exactly the same. And but now we're we're very very confident. Um, you know, the, the, the evidence is overwhelming. It's not based on opinion or belief. It's just the evidence is there, and it's it's undeniable. He died a year earlier. Now, does it matter? It doesn't matter because he's dead. You know, you could say, does it matter? No. But he he died before the king married his daughter, uh, and of course, it explains why his daughter didn't didn't go from London to his funeral in 1536, because he was already dead. He died the year before. It explains why the king didn't give Sir John any land or titles uh, when he married his daughter. He was already dead. Instead, the land and the titles went to Jane's brother, Edward Seymour, who in due course was to become Duke of Somerset. So actually, the intrigue is is a manufactured intrigue. It wasn't really there at all. Uh, And the explanation is actually quite simple.
0: Yes, it's absolutely extraordinary. I think it was, um, having read your your article, I think it's an incredibly convincing argument. It makes perfect sense, especially even during the time that Jane was, was simply being courted by the king, it is her brother that is coaching her. And, and, you know, people often wondered, where was the father? What was going on? Well, obviously the poor man wasn't even alive. So that make, that makes sense. So that, yeah, I found that really exciting when I, when I read that article. So following Sir John's death, then what happens to Wolf Hall? Does it go to his son's
1: It goes to Edward Seymour, the the son. Um, And of course, Edward Seymour, who became Duke of Somerset and who flourished as the the Lord Protector, had all the powers of a king after Henry VIII died. And Henry VIII's son, the next um, king, was just a child, was nine years old. So Edward Seymour, who was the child's, the king's the new king's uncle. By claiming his uh, blood relationship, he, he sort of established himself as Lord Protector. He wasn't a wholly reputable character in this respect, because he there's no question he manipulated the, the boy king to hand over incredible wealth absolutely monumental wealth at a time when the monasteries had just been uh, dissolved so there was a lot of land not only the sites of the monasteries but all the land that the monasteries held and through such activities Edward Seymour made himself extremely rich at the king's uh, expense and ended up with just dozens of monastic properties, dozens of, um, of, of royal hunting forests were handed over to him. And Wharf Hall itself flourished for a while, but Edward was uh, beheaded in uh, fif- very beginning of 1552. Uh, uh, his son then, who was another Edward Seymour, because... Edward Seymour, the father, had at least three sons called Edward Seymour, all of whom reached adulthood, uh, and it makes things very, very complicated. But uh, this elder son was um, the Earl of Hartford, and um, Hartford then conducted his own misdemeanour because he, he had an affair with Lady Catherine Grey, the sister of Queen Jane Grey, and he was thrown in the tower and uh, was effectively in prison for about 10 years. Now during that time, uh, Wharf Hall fell into decay and was in a pretty bad state. So by the time he got out, he, the Duke of Somerset's son, got out of prison about 1570, it was probably irreparable. And um, it was bit by bit it was demolished. And m- much of it was taken over to a new Seymour seat at Tottenham House, which was constructed about 15, 1572, 1575. Bits were left behind. Uh, we know those survived into the 1600s, but then effectively the house was turned into a, a more modest farmhouse, still large, but modest compared to the, the building there had been there before so that's why it's it's been transformed in so many ways
0: and during that time so during the 17th century later 16th century is it still is there still a Seymour connection there or has the family kind of moved to their other seats as you mentioned
1: well the at various times yes so it, it's they've sort of come and gone their presence there has has, has come and gone uh, and sometimes they held it but didn't lived there, uh, and they lived at some of the other premises that they held, particularly Amesbury Abbey and um, Tottenham House.
0: Okay, now before we conclude this conversation, can you please tell us a little bit about the fascinating story of the daughter of the King of Morocco, who was living in Wiltshire under the protection of the Earl of Hartford Edward Seymour?
1: Yeah, sure. Well, this, this is a, a, a new sort of quite intriguing story so it's a bit of a tangent in a way but I was looking at a a manuscript and and because the Seymours have been there for so long all their predecessors the same family the Astermis have been there for so long for a thousand well 900 odd years nothing has ever been thrown away you know they've never had to they've never sold the property and and had a, a great big bonfire so many of the documents survive and I was looking at a document and this document is dated 1673 and this document is talking about the transfer of quite a modest house to a particular lady Uh, and that in itself may not be very interesting it's in a terrible terrible state this document is torn to shreds and it's spotted and stained however the document also makes reference to an earlier story and it says about 70 years ago So that will place it in in about 1600. And it says about 70 years ago, the daughter of the King of Morocco was captured at sea, first by the Dutch and then by the English, and was brought to England and was put in the care of the Earl of Hertford. And that is the the son of the Duke of Somerset that we've just been talking about. And the King of Morocco at the time, he's not mentioned by name, but by research, we can identify him. The king of Morocco at the time, hearing where his daughter was, he sent his um, he sent his brother over, that's the the girl's uncle, to try and seek her repatriation. and And she apparently refused. Uh, it's interesting that she had the power to refuse. Quite frankly, uh, because I would have thought the position was quite vulnerable and potentially dangerous. But she she refused anyway. The king then. Decided to send over silver and gold and jewels to the value of one thousand two hundred pounds to the Earl of Hertford in the expectation that a massive estate would be settled on her, and that that sum of one thousand two hundred pounds in gold, silver, and jewels would have bought a very huge estate in 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 those days because you could you could sometimes rent a cottage for about fourpence a year or over 100 acres for about five pounds a year so so we're talking about a, a significant sum and the this document of 1673 is just 70 years later is trying to settle the matter because no house had ever been settled on her effectively the Seymours had taken the gold and the silver and the jewels and and they'd given her, actually given her, formally given her probably nothing, but they had had let her stay in a a modest cottage. Now, you know, you're thinking, well, you know, is this real? Because it seems so absurd, it seems so fanciful, and it may just have been a, um, like a trainee solicitor's or attorney's document he's been asked to set something out as a training exercise and this this person didn't exist but when you look at the local records the, the church records you see you see that she's there she married in 1603 and in the in both the documents she is called Britin Artiax it's it's spelt various ways but she fe- she features also in the in the church registers so she married she had three children. We only know that one of them reached uh, adulthood for certain, and we can trace her subsequently. She's left a genealogical trail, and many people subsequently in the family have been called either Britain or Britannia or variants of that, plus also this unfamiliar name, Artiax, A-R-T-I-A-X. And that name also features five times in history through different members of the family. Now, who who was this king of Morocco? Did he really exist? Well, we we can trace him. He was uh, a member of the uh, Saadian dynasty, and almost certainly somebody called Ahmad al-Mansur, the Sultan of, of Morocco. He was in close touch with Queen Elizabeth at the time, because he, the Sultan, and Queen Elizabeth were contemplating invading Spain together, a joint attack on Spain. So this was going to be diplomatically very, very sensitive. And Morocco was not a a particularly pleasant place to live at the time, possibly especially for women. And every time, well, when a Sultan died, uh, the brothers would all fight. So there'd the, the probably be a, a crown prince. He would immediately try to execute all his brothers and nephews, uncles, anybody who could be a potential rival. And there was a tremendous amount of um, infighting. And this, this lady... Britain Artyak. she had been sent away because of unrest in the country. So she'd been sent to another country for protection. And when things settled down, she was required to come back and men and shipping were sent for her. So we know she was at some distance, men and shipping were sent, but that ship in turn was captured, as the document says, first by the Dutch and then by the English. Now, in, in terms of um, the geneal- genealogical trail that she leaves, There are descendants, there are some descendants who still live in the area. And what I will say also is that uh, Ahmad al-Mansur, that's the Sultan, the King of Morocco, he claimed his right to be the the king because he was a direct descendant of the Prophet Muhammad. And that means that all the descendants are also descendants of the Prophet Muhammad. There are some still live in the area and there is um, a, a lovely man, a doctor, who lives in Cheltenham now, who comes from another branch, and when he heard this story, and um, I think it was his nephew, was having a daughter at the time, he mentioned it to to his nephew, and there is a new Arteax who has just been born and just been christened uh, with that name, so the name persists even to today. Of course, as, as I mentioned earlier, the the Seymours retained the gold and silver, and about 70 years later they, they gave her, or they gave her descendants, a probably a pathetic little cottage and um, the right to um, graze three cows and three horses in, um, in Savanac Forest. So there's no question about who the winners were in this you know, it's quite likely that the the Seymours are so interesting, but they're not the sort of people you want to invite round for tea, quite frankly, you know, they would, they would exploit you.
0: Yeah, you don't need to convince me, Graham, you can see my cushion (laughs) behind me, you know, what team I stand for. (laughs) What an extraordinary story. I, I just, I marvel at the fact that all these years, centuries later, we are still uncovering such fascinating, and, and really personal stories and, and that news of the baby being born is just absolutely wonderful. I think um, that thread continuing on, uh, it's fantastic. I can imagine we'll see some novels coming out about this soon. Graham, <laughs> you might have to get onto that. <laughs> it
1: w- well, it won't be me, but there is, um, there is an expert who, who has said uh, we need to get this dramatised. Yes. Um, wh- whether she will or not, I don't know. I mean, I'll, I'll leave all that to the creative people.
0: Yeah, I hope so. It sounds amazing. Now, the last thing that we do here on Talking Tudors is what I like to call a, just a little game of 10 to go. So 10 questions to get to know you a little bit better. So the first one is, what's the last book that you read or a book that you're currently reading?
1: Yes, I'm. I, well, concerning the Tudors, there is a, a wonderful or author called Paula Henderson and she's written a book on on the Tudor house and garb and it very much concentrates on the setting of the house of these houses because the houses weren't just designed as buildings they were designed as locations in a whole environment sorry this is supposed to be quite quick this bit no,
0: <laughs> not at all I was writing it down because now I, I the cover looks familiar so I'm wondering if it's on my shelf over there but I'll I need to check I always Get write it right I always buy more books after I do these interviews. It happens all the time. So when you were a child, what did you dream of being when you grew up?
1: Well, what I became really, I, I was always obsessed by natural history. And in those days, probably conservation was a fringe sort of, I did ecology at university. It was really a, a fringe thing. All Everybody had, or everybody who did it had long hair and long <laughs> beards and, and looked you know, outcasts of society. Now, of course, the environment has become centre stage. It's become mainstream and people wear suits and ties, but uh, not in those days. But I, I I, still love natural history. I'm still always looking for, for plants and butterflies and birds.
0: And what about, I know we haven't been holidaying very much over the past couple of years, but um, what is a favourite holiday destination for you?
1: Well, in it, it has to be um, the Hebrides, or the Outer Hebrides, and I've been on the Outer Hebrides every year until this blasted disease uh, has struck, looking at the archaeology, helping the National Trust for Scotland, and particularly visiting the uninhabited islands of the southern Outer Hebrides. There are, there are four islands there, uh, Mingulay, Pabe, Bernare, and Sande and visiting those and recording monuments there and looking at the natural history because there are millions of seabirds so you can combine my two great loves which are natural history and um, archaeology.
0: Well that does sound wonderful and what about a new skill that you'd like to learn I could see you're a lifelong learner what's a new skill that you'd like to add to your um, repertoire?
1: I wish I were were better at at languages, I must confess, and um, I can sort of get by in Latin, reading Latin, not speaking Latin, but I can get by in that, but looking at Old English, you know, that that is Old English, we call it English, but it might just as well be something Germanic, but it's not remotely familiar and um, uh, to, to be more competent in that rather than having to look just about everything up that would be great but it's not going to happen because I'm I'm poor at languages and you just have mm-hmm. to recognize some things you're good at and some things you'll never master.
0: Thinking back on your career the career that you've had what's been a sort of favorite thing that's happened or a favorite moment in your career?
1: Well I I, th- I think it's working with commons really the because that again combines both the, the history and the natural history. The common rights probably are ancient here, probably prehistoric. They certainly go back to, um, go back a thousand years or more, we can prove that. And by the layout of the land, it looks as if they go back to probably the Bronze Age and to see that continuity, I always love it when you can visit a site and you, or perhaps you unearth something in a site. There are places in the Outer Hebrides where you can unearth sequences of bones from thousands of years ago. And you see, oh, there was otter and there was red shank and there was white-tailed eagle and there was golden eagle. And they were there thousands of years ago and they're there today. You know, so that long period of continuity. I love and and the management of the land by commoning where everybody shares an area of land together I just love that and I live I live in the new forest which is um, and I have common rights here so we have the right to put out um, ponies and cattle and um, donkeys and pigs in season the only thing we put out from here really are ponies but I, I just love to have that ancient right and to have that that connection with people who've lived here for many, many centuries.
0: Yeah, that is incredible. And I was actually going to ask you what's something that you love about where you live. So I think you've kind of answered that one <laughs> as well. Um, so, do you collect any apart from books? Because I can see lots of those. Do you collect anything? Are you a collector?
1: I don't think actually I'm a trophy hunter. I suppose um, to some extent. I'm a bit of a I'm just a bit of a twitcher. I, I I love seeing birds. I love seeing different birds. I don't really like seeing an extremely rare bird that has been blown thousands of miles off its range now will die. We'll never find a mate will die. I'm not keen on that but I I'm keen on new things in natural history. So so I collect those and, and they're called lifers, things that you have never seen before. And there are very few at the moment because we can't travel like we mm. like we So there are very few, very few lifers at the moment. But yes, previously, with with travel, you see, I like to see things where they should be, which I have never seen before. And and I went to Yellowstone um fairly recently or before COVID. And and it was just magnificent there to see so many, you know, everything on the the target list was there. Brown bears, black bears, wolves, coyotes, American red fox, elk, caribou, everything. Everything that you wanted to see was was there. And, And pretty close too.
0: You obviously love history and you love lots of different periods of history. So if you could travel back to see just one event, from history what would it be where would you go when would you go
1: there are a lot of things aren't there and um i think sometimes we have a a a rose tinted view of history because um we think well history is something you know it's another country and it feels quite comfortable to study history to study the black death when you've got a a pandemic and you realize crumbs we are part now with living history you know people will say in the future oh will you will you you know, where was the pandemic and, and it will be a fulcrum point for, for dating as in the same way that we talk about the last war or etc. Um, so it feels uncomfortable to be part of history. I think I, I think I would, if I could be safe, I would like to know more about the Black Death but that's going to be difficult, isn't <laughs> it? Um, <laughs> you, might, you might judge that wrongly so you'd have to look from a, a safe distance.
0: Yes, that could be a one-way ticket, that one, Graham. <laughs> um, and very last question, can you think of a piece of advice or something that you've been told in your life that is, has that is really meant quite a lot to you that you wouldn't mind sharing with us?
1: I, I suppose that I would say, have a passion. If, you know, you've got to have, you've got to have something which really, really fires you and that. When there aren't enough hours in the day to to follow your interest, and you never have to think, oh, what am I going to do today? Because the list is so so long, you haven't got enough of a lifetime to to undertake all those things. So I suspect it doesn't really matter what you study, what you look at, provided it really ignites you and you can pursue it relentlessly. But whether whether it is possible for people our age to say any give any advice which is genuinely useful to to young people they have to sort of find these things for themselves I suspect I think I think that's what I find with my my grandchildren you know you try and sort of coax them in particular ways but they probably have to fire find their own interests.
0: I think that's a wonderful response thank you and there is just one more thing that I like to ask my guests before we finish up and that is for a tutor takeaway so it's just for something for our listeners to go off and explore after the episode it may be a book recommendation a website that you think is really great or anything really a song to listen to do you have a tutor takeaway for us
1: i'm not going to give you a song <laughs> you'll be glad to hear the um, <laughs> um what i will say is, is that a, a fairly recent technique or well, over the last um uh, say 10 to 20 years is lidar and lidar it's like radar. Radar stands for Radio Direction and Ranging. LIDAR stands for Light Direction and Ranging. And it's an aerial reconnaissance technique uh, which uses lasers, and from the, um, it's a photographic technique, and from the plane there are tens of thousands of laser beams uh, projected down per second, tens of thousands per second, and in a in a woodland, for example, some of those beams will touch the the leaves of the trees above. Some will penetrate a little bit further, um, and and perhaps find the uh, branches. Some will get to a scrub layer, and some will go all the way through the bluebells and the bramble or whatever there is, right to the very bottom. And then they reflect back up again. And in the same way that radar detects how far something away is by how long it takes for the beam to bounce back the plane is doing exactly the same thing and lidar creates the most staggering images of tiny little features on the ground which may stretch for miles which nobody has seen for centuries and centuries. Now when I when I was um, a, a nature conservationist or professional nature conservation, I used to go around and say to people, well, oh, your, your woodland is ancient woodland. It's probably been there since the Ice Age. Total rubbish, absolute nonsense because LiDAR shows that there are human features there, tiny little fields, and it was something different in the Bronze Age, probably something different again in, in the Iron Age. Now, in in Britain, there is a, a, a website, it's called LiDAR Finder, and not the whole country is covered by LiDAR yet, but a good proportion is. Uh, and it's of different quality. If you get that top quality, the top quality, of course, is going to be military quality, where they they can detect something about that size from from these from these planes. And it's about twenty five centimeters. In, incredible detail, and it is such a wonderful technique. And if you can, if you look up lidar, L I D A R, and just look at some of the images, they are tremendous. And in due course, perhaps there will be. A a Google lidar, like there's a Google Earth at the moment, and, and that you'll be able to look at things all over the world. And this technique has shown that even, even places that we think are pristine, like the Amazon rainforest, you know, there are signs of human activity there thousands of years ago. Uh, and, and we have left our mark all over the Earth. Not always good, but it's, it's there.
0: What a fantastic takeaway. You know what I'm going to be doing now with a cup of tea this evening, LIDAR, out. that's where I'm going. Thank you so much, Graham. Thank you for such a fascinating um, conversation and thank you for agreeing to talk
1: Tudors with us. It's been great. I've really enjoyed it. Thank you so much, Natalie.
0: Well, that brings us to the end of this episode of Talking Tudors. the behind the scenes news. You'll also find me on Twitter. My handle is on the Tudor trail and on Instagram as the most happy 78. It's time now for us to re-enter the modern world. As always, I look forward to talking Tudors with you again very soon.